Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every week with a new story about your world. Today's guest is J.C. Lozano, a San Antonio LGBTQ activist whose concerns about her queer brown community go beyond civil rights. She wants to start a conversation on addiction and mental health. JC will talk about her recovery and will also share resources on how to start that first step towards sobriety. Thank you for following the Jesse Garcia Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessegarciashow.com. Even before the pandemic hit the United States last year, substance abuse and mental health were growing problems according to research by the National Institute of Drug Abuse and Mental Health America. COVID-19 made matters worse. The fear of uncertainty and not being able to connect in person with counselors has taken its toll. The CDC recorded the highest number of drug overdoses in a one-year period. More than 81,000 people OD'd between May 2019 and May 2020. For those who are struggling without their usual Alcoholic Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous meetings, social distance can be deadly. Luckily, telehealth is an option many are beginning to trust, and more people are engaging with an online platform that some suggest may become a permanent option after the pandemic is over. That personal interaction, though, is the strongest medicine for those battling addiction. Today's guest, J.C. Lozano, says that for many, the road to recovery starts with a nice, non-judgmental conversation. I want to welcome to the show my good friend, J.C. Lozano, on the podcast. I know J.C. for three years. We both serve on the LULAC National LGBTQ Affairs Committee, and uh, we help recruit and mentor the next generation of queer brown activists. Welcome to the show, J.C. Hi, Jesse. Thank you for having me. It is an absolute honor to be here with you. JC, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get to the subject matter. Well, um, I was born in Corpus Christi. I was brought to San Antonio at 10 months and I grew up here. Then I joined AmeriCorps, proud AmeriCorps alumni, also served with the Student Conservation Association before buckling down and working for Theo Sam. I now work for the United States Air Force. Awesome. And proudly uh, married to a beautiful woman. I live across the street from my parents here on the south side of San Antonio. Didn't think I'd be that person, but it's great. <laughs> great, right? Uh, I really love San Antonio so much. I, I spent my formative years there. My first baby queer years were there Aww. coming out in San Antonio, going to the Bonham Exchange on Saturdays. Oh, yes. the same on Sundays it was a great place um, to come out and to see all the beautiful things about the LGBT community especially the drag San Antonio drag is over the top uh, I love <laughs> it I miss it I miss the food you are so lucky San Antonio oh. oh my god yeah I'll never be the weight I would dream to be <laughs> but I eat the way I love so <laughs> 
I got to, like I said, I got to meet you back in 2018. When uh, when I first met you, you were this energetic person at our LULAC conference that we had for LGBT LULAC members. Uh, so we had the Hispanic Civil, largest and oldest Hispanic civil rights organization for the first time put this summit together for all these queer brown activists in Dallas, Texas. You traveled to go up there and I got to meet you. And when I was asking the audience about, you know, ways we can engage and and how to fight, you know, injustice. What are some ideas to motivate people to come out and to engage folks? What are the, some of the topics that we should be consider, you know, considering for future summits? And your answer came right out of left field. I mean, not one that I expected, because you know, there's so many social issues that the LGBT community is worried about. But you said fighting addiction, and I was just like, whoa. Because it's a topic that we don't talk about often in the LGBTQ community. And we, if there's someone with a problem, we tend not to like let people know about it. It's just like, it's sort of like a family, you know, like a Latino family. We just keep it to ourselves mm-hmm. and we try to help out the person. But we don't talk about addiction. But you want to change that. Why? You know, I love that you bring up already the culture behind what we know addiction to be you know, the, the joke of the borracho, right? Yeah. There's always like the tío who's always drunk in the corner. It's and, part of the loteria, el borracho. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? I know, I'm always like, look, it's me, the borracha. Like, I'm joking, <laughs> we play loteria now, right? Yeah. Um, And I had, uh, growing up, I saw alcoholism. I saw addiction. And it was, I guess, normalized. We knew that they were, you know, Prima, so-and-so is struggling. So-and-so is not doing well right now. And that was it. Uh, I did actually have a cousin growing up who got sober, but they like moved states away. And we knew because they had struggled with drugs and alcohol and they had to leave. And that was it. Um, But no one ever really sat down and said like, hey, JC, you come from a long line of people who suck at drinking. Um, So if you suck at drinking, there's something you can do about it. There is a solution. We, just, we did not have that conversation. And I don't blame anyone for it. I just say that's where we came from. Yes. Uh, but to, to get back, what was the question again? I'm, I'm going to ask basically that. Basically that you wanted to talk about this uh, in the LGBT community, that you felt like this was a topic that needed to be brought up. Mm-hmm. And like you said, uh, being in the queer brown space, we tend to rely on what our culture has dictated to us on how to treat the problem, which is sometimes making excuses for it. Right. You yeah. want to talk about it openly in the LGBT community. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. And I even think of like the quinceanera, they have the bottle on the table and I'm not yeah. mad at that. It's cultural. That's fine. Let's drink and be merry and break bread. Uh, but specifically to talk about the queer brown community, where do we tend to meet each other? You spoke of nostalgia of the Bonham and the saint. You didn't talk about, and not no offense to you, but nostalgia yeah. of uh, like safe places for queer brown people. Like now, thank goodness, Robert Salcida, we have the Pride Center. And I hope we have young queers having that same nostalgia that you referenced back to. You know, a safe yeah, You just pointed it out that my gay world coming out in San Antonio revolved around the bar culture. And girl, I- I'm not... 
I'm not joking. I, I know, but I love how you pointed <laughs> that you know, out. That's <laughs> I could have easily said, you know, we used to hang out at the park. We used to, you know, go see gay movies together at, at somebody's house. No, it's just so how alcohol plays into our culture. You know, in our in our queer community, our youth, our queer brown youth, any of our LGBT youth is a targeted demographic for trafficking. Okay, we are homeless. We are kicked out to the curb and we are looking for familia. We're looking for fellowship. We're looking for family. And, you know, they tend to be in that scene. That's where they're out and about. So I think that that is why it being a part of my story and seeing the detriment that or you know, just, just seeing how it did not enhance me as a young woman, you know, looking to uh, higher education or looking into um, you know, a career. I didn't have that older generation to hold my hand and walk me into that. Now there's plenty of us drinking. <laughs> there's plenty of us having a good time. And again, I'm not against that. If, if you're having a good time, that is your testimony. It just, we are, we are already a targeted demographic, a discriminated demographic, and we need to take care of that demographic as well. When did you realize that you had a problem? Um, 16. I started drinking at 15, 16 years old, and I was a blackout drinker from the jump. I'm telling you, wow. I come from a long line of individuals who do not do well with the bottle. And I was writing the very same story as some family members. And so I thought it was normal, you know? Oh, well, there's the borracho in the corner. Well, I thought I was going to be that borracha in the corner. You know, I thought I was going to just be drinking through whatever. I, I don't know. I just normalized. And as a sick woman, as a sick young lady, I normalized it for myself. I remember growing up and when alcohol was involved, we were so poor in San Antonio because we were college stu students, you know, that were struggling. So when we would go out, we would be desperate to go get our fix before heading to the bar because we couldn't afford the drinks. At right, the right. Pre-game. Yep. One or two <laughs> and we would pre-game but even then we were limited because we just didn't have enough money. You know, we just didn't have m enough money to go getting so wasted, you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what, you know, being access <laughs> to it, you know, kind of saved me from a similar fate. But it's just, it's just, I just hearing that you started so early because with me, I didn't even start drinking until I was like in my, in my college years. But you at 16, wow. That's really scary to think of just because I have a nephew who's coming up on that age. And yeah. I wasn't alone. I was with other youth at that age, you know. And so eighth grade, ninth grade, that's when it started for me. And I was not alone. I was with other, you know, Southside kids who, you know, probably had that same exposure. And, you know, without, uh, with abusive alcohol, you know, there's and violence it, around. There's no yeah. domestic abuse. Go ahead. Yeah, was it like a daily basis? Because I remember in my high school years, my junior and senior year, we had access to alcohol when we would cross the border because they would sell it to us in Matamoros, <laughs> Mexico, because we mm -hmm. looked old enough or because they didn't really care. But we were able to consume it. But that would be like a Friday night, you know, or Saturday night when we would go out. But was this like a daily occurrence of you drinking? When you're um, not as a teenager, no, but I did buy as a 16 year old at the corner store and it was like the legal age was 21, but I guess like, you know, I just go to the little 
yes. corner store, the local corner store. Like no one asked questions. I was 16 yeah. buying alcohol. And no, at that time it was just like, there we go, Friday, Saturday night. I was a yeah. big athlete at the time. So I would, you know, control myself and I was focused on those things. But yeah. When did you finally decide to get help? Um, I'm pretty sure I was volunteered to get hope because <laughs> I'd got into some trouble, but you know, I was really scared at some of the behavior I was partaking in and I went to rehab. I did outpatient rehab for a couple of weeks here in San Antonio at Lower Ridge. It's a big rehab center for federal employees and military members. And at, at what age were you? Okay, at age. Thank you. I was 27 when I first attempted to get sober. Yes, sir. So from a good 10 years, almost a decade, mm -hmm. you had been dealing with this problem. Yes. You, at the at the age of 27, it says it's finally time. Well, you were voluntold, but voluntold, right? <laughs> but you have to agree to go in there. And how did it feel going into rehab? It's very humbling you meet other people that are just really just, yeah, I mean, no one goes into rehab at the peak of their career or doing so well, you know, you meet other people down in the dumps and it was my introduction, it was my introduction to then a 12 step program that I currently still partake in. Um, but I didn't actually get sober until 30. So you're right. I had a good amount of time, well over a decade. I was introduced at 27 to recovery. My current sobriety date is July 7th of 2015. So there's a little bit of time there, you know, yeah. it takes a little bit. There are some people, it took a little bit for me. All I have is my testimony, but yeah. some people, you know, day one, they put it down and they rock on. Good for you. That's just not my story. Um, but, you know, I made it out alive and, you know, life is good. I know. I'm going to share something. I don't know much about the program. What, what I know is from that show, Mom. I love that show. Popular show on CBS. I watched it because of Anna Ferris. I love Anna Ferris. Yeah. I watched it and I had no idea it was about the 12th strip. That's part of the show that they're recovering alcoholics, mm -hmm. uh, recovering addiction. And I, because of that, I became more interested in it because I wasn't ready to invest. The pandemic right. hit and I needed <laughs> to watch something. And I'm like, well, I like Anna Ferris. Right. So I started watching that show. As soon as the pandemic hit in March, I needed to watch something that had been on. And I went through the whole series throughout the summer. And it's just, it was just sort of like, wow. Not only when you're on your recovery, sometimes those in recovery fall off the wagon. And it's like, you have to start up and do it all over again. And you were rooting for those characters, you know? And when they fall off, you just feel like, oh, God, they have to start at square one. But it just, it, I'm so happy that they put that show out there so they could let yeah. us know about what the steps are and, and how you you're always in recovery. You're never going to, it's not like you're getting better. You're just trying to maintain and sustain that recovery. Amen. Yes. I mean, it's very much just what I have today. I mean, that's all we ever have, right? This illusion of uh, just future tripping or the control of what tomorrow is. It, it is put to the side like what we have is today in our 24 hours i think the show does and again this is very much my personal yeah. humble opinion i think they do a really good job of like the of the little sayings the little mantras uh, yeah. that we have in program and you know everyone has their own experience with it and i i, I love the show i think they do a great job 
And then I'm, it's also like the Hollywood version, you know? I yeah. mean, a lot of people have decades of not ever slipping too, you know? And so, but it's a great show. I'm a big Anna Ferris fan as well. <laughs> they, they don't show too much of the, they do show sometimes the downfalls where people mm -hmm. die because of their addiction. You know, sometimes they, yes, they do cover a little bit of that, but I do think it, it just goes to show that this, they need to normalize this, that this is something that needs to be talked about in American, cult, in American culture, not as a joke, but as of as of as of a population that exists, mm -hmm. um, now people are embracing the fact that there's we have a problem with opioid addiction and not looking at incarceration, but mm -hmm. assistance like mental health and actual um, providing programs to get people out of this mess with the opioid uh, addiction. But they're not thinking incarceration. It's starting, you know, they should have thought of this way back before they started the war on drugs. I mean, uh, we can race, talk about yeah. that because trust, I mean, we I think we both know that race played a big part into that. Yes. But you know, what the show is really doing for us is just like Ellen did, kind of removing that stigma of it, right? Yeah. Did you know that gay people walks amongst you and you love them if you didn't know? Well, yeah. you know, alcoholics and addicts, we walked amongst you. Yeah. And you love us too. <laughs> you know, we're removing that stigma. We're talking about this. So over that decade that you struggled with addiction and you finally got into rehab, how strong was your support system when you started being sober in 2015? I will not cry when I talk about this. <laughs> my, I had really just had my mom and dad. Um, I have two siblings, an older brother, an older sister and a younger brother. Um, but my support system really was just my parents. I have amazing parents. You know, when you're, when you're young, you know, your parents as mom and dad, yes. in your twenties and your, in your twenties. And for me, twenties, early thirties, you start knowing them as for me, it's James and Diana. You start knowing them as these people and they are not only great parents, they are great people as well. And they have been down for their Miha from the jump. Absolutely. That's beautiful. But it's so beautiful because there's so many people that are willing to give up and just throw away problems in their family, but they didn't. They ran to you. They didn't run away from you. They didn't quit me once. And I will say that my father is leading by example. He is sober himself. I think he got sober in 2013. Yeah, 2013. So to be second generation Latina in recovery is not something that a lot of us have, you know, like to be to have like a grandparent or a parent to be in recovery. So I, to me, I think it's really cool because we don't see as many um, of the Latinx in the rooms. I was about we to say, I, I was about to say, cause a lot of us grew up thinking that therapy, counseling, that's a white person thing. Privilege. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, because it's sort of like one yeah, thing. Fancy, get fancy. That's very yeah. fancy, right? <laughs> because the reason why I say that is because one, it's stuff that was never talked about. We deal with our own problems, or mm -hmm. you tell your best, your comadre, but right. you don't go to some stranger and, and divulge your information. And then and second, it costs money. Yeah, <laughs> to pay these counselors, but no, right. we need to start talking about mental health and all of this with our kids and have them be comfortable enough to talk to those school counselors that are available for free. Yes. With your thanks to your 
tax dollars that you pay into the school systems, Amen. they need to be using those counselors. They need to be talking out their problems. And in, think about you're taking your kid to a dental appointment and a medical appointment. If they need access to a mental health professional, you should fit that in that schedule if you feel like they need it because it's something that we need to normalize. But I was there. I was there when I was thinking, oh, therapy? That's just a white person thing, yes. you know? Yo, uh, trust me when I say I grew into this. Um, I had the exact same perspective, probably into my 20s as well. I am very fortunate to have a very forward-leaning mother, you know, strong Latina. And, you know, trauma has happened in our family. And she was the one who's like, okay, well, we see a therapist about this. What are our resources? Like, we don't need to go talk to the, the cousins. We don't need to go talk to family. We need to talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. A trained professional. A trained yeah. professional. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I want to thank all the, the counselors out there that deal with this problem. Yes. Just know that my my opinion has totally, totally changed. I support you all. And I'm, uh, so, I'm friends with several of them. And I'm able to promote their services because it's, it's something that we need. We just, it's just for so long, our community has not tapped into that resource. And I'm so happy that I, I'm seeing more Latinx uh, professionals in the mental sector. Amen. I definitely talk openly to my fellow airmen that I see a therapist. Like literally we have a mental health, uh, we have a behavioral health that says come to us. And there's still stigmatism in the service. However, um, we have to be, I have to be the change I want to see. Exactly. I wish I would have had an NCO, a non-commissioned officer before me say, utilize these resources. And actually I did, I, I won't talk against them. I had a senior NCO who, uh, who strongly said, JC, go to counseling. And I took them up on it. So you could just imagine you always, person that's in recovery needs to have access to people to get better, to, to stay strong during their recovery but everything got upended because of this pandemic. We couldn't meet in person. We, it was a, a struggle to get online, to learn how to use meeting online, Zoom, all of that. For people that are not tech savvy, this was a high hill to climb. And so you could just imagine the hurt that this vulnerable community went through when the pandemic hit. Um, the CDC came out with some numbers saying there was a lot of deaths yes. because of addiction within mm -hmm. a one-year period. When they looked at, you know, figures compared to years past, they saw so many people die because mm -hmm. of their addiction mm -hmm. as the pandemic got stronger throughout the United States. It, it's just, it was really sad. How has the pandemic affected you? Speaking from a perspective of sobriety, I saw firsthand the struggle, right? That learning curve of transitioning from driving to a meeting after work to now getting on this Zoom app, right? That's the majority of us using that platform and just being turned off to it. Like, I'm not gonna be able to see my homies. What do you mean? Like- Because you feed off of the reactions. When absolutely. You story. And the fact that you're meeting not in a secure space with your peers to share your stories. Your right. online is this being shared 
who are the people that are not turning on their cameras. I could just only imagine what you're going through when you're trying to be vulnerable and reveal stuff about yourself. To yeah, you're talking into a camera, right? You're talking to a camera, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had that, you know, with that learning curve, you're right. I love that you bring that. It's like all those memories are coming back of what that time looked like. Um, I have a home group. Um, that's just a, a group that I tend to go to. And it is, of course, the Lambda group. So it is all the queens and the yeah. LGBTQ plus community. Oh, so you got a queer brown group. That's Yes. Cool. Oh, and I am so fortunate that majority, for whatever reason, tend to be the Latinx community. So it's just that much, like, that much more easier, like, to, like, relate to what's going on. It is in those rooms that I first started seeing sober brown women openly gay talking about their career like all these tears are just blown away but great that's a whole other topic <laughs> that's a whole other topic i hadn't met maria yet okay so <laughs> um, so um but transitioning to um an online platform people were doing those zoom bombings did you hear about that yes um yeah, they love to go in there and just you know just you know distract or whatever else and so we had to like not only like learn how to be on this platform but like learn how to deter those zoom bombers and then talk about like what the medium format was going to be and if your camera's not on that's fine you're welcome here but you can't share like all those little things to yeah. learn off the off, you know off the cuff uh, but we did it i'm really proud of of the people that made that happen it's all in their free time and it's because they want to see us transition onto that for someone that's listening today to the podcast and they want to start their journey, what are the, some of the first basic steps that they need to start taking? For someone who wants to get sober. Someone sure. who's just, honestly, I am such an advocate for try it. It's not going to hurt. Um, you know, they say pick your poison. It's a poison. Put down the poison for a little bit. Just um, personally, uh, like we mentioned before, I'm a part of a 12-step recovery group. You can also find other like meetups that are that they're focusing on not drinking. Now, obviously, some meetups they can do six feet apart and they can like you know go on trail walks or something outside where it's going to be pandemic version safe. Yes. Uh, maybe um, do the about doing the exploring can be at but at a meetup where there's just not alcohol involved. I learned my hobbies when I got sober. Because a lot of times our our activities time is, is happy hour. Exactly. Right. Your free time hour. is eaten up by drinking alcohol at a bar. And right. now that you have all this free time, now you have discovered what are some of your hobbies? Um, and I do want to mention not drinking has been the best financial decision. I personally <laughs> have made. <laughs> I'm yes. with a whole other income. Um, I learned that I love to take walks. I love to ride my bike in the woods. I learned that I love to be a part of community. So I joined my LULAC council. Yeah. I learned that I love to be a part of community gardens and learning about compost and interacting and learning, hearing other stories of people's testimonies. And, you know, in these rooms, we meet the gnarliest characters. I've met a recording artist, I meet the librarian, I meet people that are the superintendents of schools, all these other stories. Um, so, um, I mean, I really think that finding a meetup, just find a meeting and, and, you, and honestly, and then you have to learn how to introduce yourself and just be a little uncomfortable. So if you can learn how to be a little uncomfortable um, just be a little, I'm obnoxious, I don't care, I can make, <laughs> I'm okay with being, 
uh, like kind of be embarrassed for a few minutes, it'll pass. If you embarrass yourself by saying something silly, don't worry, they'll forget about it. Most of us are involved in ourselves, anyways. Now, what <laughs> if someone who's hearing this podcast is related or is friends with someone that needs to get sober? What are the do's and don'ts? Like, don't do this. Don't force that person to do this or be there for them with this. What do you recommend? Yo, it's, I think it's as simple as listen and be nice. Just listen and be nice. Maybe don't have a drink around them for a while. You know, don't invite them out to areas that are going to have that or, or invite them and say, look, this, I'm going to go to this event or um, if you'd like to come over, if they're in your, you know, COVID circle or COVID bubble, if you will. Yeah. Or when we get out of pandemic life, let them know there will be alcohol there. Is that going to be an issue? Because at first it was an issue for me. I didn't do that for like the first year of my sobriety. Now I went out, if I go out to dinner and someone's like, oh, I want to have a drink, but I don't want to be rude. Like, yo, like enjoy yourself. Yeah. I'm not worried about your drinking right now. That's where I'm at. So, you know, that communication, listening and just being nice. I just feel like that's what always helped me. People were nice to me. It doesn't help when you're judging and you're putting down someone and mm -hmm. constantly harassing them about their alcohol intake. Right. You just need someone to be supportive and listen to the person because sometimes it's not the alcohol that got them there. It's, it's, it's not a craving. It's something that they're trying to ease the pain of something that's already there at times. So sometimes they need to talk through those problems, you know? Right. And again, it's like, let's like, let's see a therapist. Why are we wanting to go to this destructive behavior and learning, learning a lot. And it's really interesting to see so much recovery based um, vocabulary in the general population today. We, I've, I've seen memes that talk about healthy boundaries and toxic people and, um, and energy suckers. And I'm like, y'all are, we are out here, y'all. Like our generation is talking about it. The the Latinx community, the queer community, like we're talking about it and we're we're doing it. It's no longer that stigma of not taking care of yourself. I love it. I'm here for it. Thank you so much, JC. I really appreciate you having this conversation today because some people might think that this is something to be embarrassed about, but you wear this with pride and you share this wherever you go not only to help you and your journey, but because you know that there's going to be people in the room they, that might be having the same problem. Mm -hmm. And you are helping them by just being vocal about it. Where can people get more information about seeking treatment for their addiction? Do you have any um, suggestions? Well, you know, that 12-step program that I've mentioned a couple of times um, has worked very well for me. And I know there's no one size fits all, but there's an app for that, literally. Literally. Okay? Differently, different apps to say, I want to stop drinking, now what? I literally have Googled, I want to stop drinking, now what? And there's a bunch of things. I, I'm not endorsing, but I did also find this one website called thelatinocommission.org. And it looks like a very holistic approach. And they also talk about um, reaching out and having a connection with their ancestors, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I don't know if that was available 10, 15 years ago, yeah. you know, but it definitely sounds like La Raza taking care of La Raza. And I find that to be important. But um, just, and you grew up Catholic, am I correct? Correct. 
Right. So Catholicism has like daily scriptures to read. Am I am I correct? I think so. I have. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm a cafeteria Catholic. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, it's fine. Um, and I think, and the reason why I ask is because, and it's a genuine question because I thought I had seen that's like this Catholicism scripture. It's like daily scripture, right? And it's from the Bible. I'm not religious myself, but you can also find like daily reading meditations. And I really feel personally like these reading meditations have helped with just planting the idea of JC, you're worth it. Be kind today. Remember you are just here to be of service to others. And I believe in that propaganda. That propaganda yeah. is the good propaganda. So I think those <laughs> are little mantras that help us every day. If people wanna get uh, talk to someone today, they can call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health hotline at 1-800-622-HELP. That's 1-800-622-4357. And that's the substance abuse and mental health hotline that the federal government provides. JC, I just want to say again, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, you're a very brave woman. I'm so glad that we met three years ago because I think we have a lot to work on regarding this topic and I hope to introduce it and, and share it more with queer brown people that we talk to and recruit to be the next generation of activists that they need to include this component in our community so we could help a whole lot more people become whole again. Well, thank you for having me. You know, I saw Dolores Huerta when she was here in San Antonio and I wanted to ask her like, what, you know, what do you think about this community? I'm still looking to get her answer when we talk about mental health so I'm here for the conversation. It, I, Jesse, you know I'm a fan. I literally have you on my phone as Jesse. I'm his uh, fan. You can ask my wife. Um, <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm here for it. There's a we're, we made it out alive. We're we're coming back to life, and we are ready to get to work. Thank you. The feelings mutual, Jesse. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you.